right, welcome to The Golden Shadow. My name is Aaron Rogerson, and my co-host is Alyssa Polizzi. Today we are joined by Dr. Cadell Last, a philosopher interested in the consequence of psychoanalytic discovery of the unconscious psyche for contemporary problems in science, spirituality, and general culture. He is the author of Global Brain Singularity and Sex, Masculinity, and God. He is also the director of psychedelic research at Serenity. Today, we will be discussing the relationship between Freud and Jung, uh, the nature of their conflict, how their respective philosophies influenced our modern understanding of human psychology, and so on. Uh, so we're going to kick things off with a presentation that Cadell has put together exploring uh, the theories and relationship between Freud and Jung. Uh, so Cadell, thanks for being here today. How are you doing? Hey, doing great. Thanks for the introduction, guys. Um, yeah, so I've, I've prepared a, a little presentation on, on Freud and Jung, um, and then, yeah, just opened any, any questions or any discussion that emerges from that, and um, hopefully this will give sort of um, a useful and informative overview, at least where I sort of stand at the moment with my own um, relationship to psychoanalysis and, and, and sort of the conversation I hope to engage in with... Uh, with psychoanalysis. So let me just share my screen. And a little bit of a provocative um, image there, but it's, it, this is, this is like, I really wanted to, I really wanted to uh, put the verses in like, um, yeah, like quotation marks because um, it's not going to be, well, there is going to be an antagonistic dimension to the presentation, but like predominantly this presentation isn't antagonistic. It's, it's really dialectical um, and, and hopefully useful to sort of situate how I understand the emergence of psychoanalysis and also it's sort of like it's historicity, I suppose, because what we're really talking about when it comes to Freud and Jung is really, um, I think, kind of like a meta father-son relationship. Because what we're dealing with here is someone who basically invented a field of study. And we're dealing with someone who was training underneath someone who developed a field of study. And there was a conceptual disagreement and theoretical disagreements that emerged, which is actually quite normal in the history of knowledge. Um, whenever we have the emergence of a new field, um, that field always gets structured by conceptual disagreements. And I think it's interesting to have an overview on of, of um, you know, the genesis of the field and sort of like really going into the disagreement without making a straw man out of either side, if that makes sense, because that's the only way we're going to learn and in some sense avoid what I would call ideological capture. So as um, Aaron said, like my background is I've written two books. One is a doctoral thesis, which is basically about um, the technological singularity. Um, I also run a YouTube channel where I'm basically interested in psychoanalytically informed philosophy. So I wanna emphasize that I'm coming at psychoanalysis 
this from a philosophical point of view. And that I really think that psychoanalysis today and the importance of psychoanalysis is on the level of philosophy, um, which is interesting because neither Freud nor Jung were philosophers. And actually Freud famously had quite a bit of disdain for philosophy. Um, and also sort of uh, as a, the professional side of my life today, um, I teach dialectical thinking at the School of Thinking in Brussels. Um, and basically I'm going to be uh, taking you through today this presentation. Um, it, I wanna emphasize that this is a exercise in dialectical thinking, um, which to me is so important because dialectical thinking is I think the best method I know of to avoid ideology um, or ideological capture. And then finally, I am interested in working uh, at the intersection of psychedelic psychotherapy. And one of the reasons why I think philosophy is so important today in the context of psychoanalysis is because psychedelic psychotherapy is going to become a thing. Um, there are a lot of companies getting involved in psychedelic psychotherapy. Um, and Freud and Jung didn't have much to say about psychedelics, um, even though, you know, both dabbled with different substances. Um, neither of them really had much, you know, directly to say about psychedelics. So I think that's one of the reasons, again, why philosophy is so important in this conversation about psychoanalysis. So that's a little background on me. So I want to introduce you all to dialectical thinking. Again, that's sort of my professional expertise at the moment. And dialectical thinking is basically a method that was developed consciously by figures like Plato and Aristotle and, you know, embodied probably most famously by Socrates, um, which basically works with the logic of contradiction and opposition as opposed to identity. So just take that into perspective of this conversation about Freud and Jung is that instead of sort of ideologically aligning with either, dialectics would rather seek to understand the contradictions and the nature of their opposition and work through that whole process logically. So dialectical logic operates on the foundation of A equals B, which is a paradox which basically is saying that all identity in its core nature is paradoxical. Um, so when we're taking that logic, and I'm just try trying here to demonstrate how useful this sort of method can be because everything I'm going to present today is in the spirit of paradoxical identity. So again, not sort of aligning with Freud or Jung, but rather going into this interested in what can come out of their opposition in a generative way, let's say. So when it comes to psychoanalysis itself, um, the origin of psychoanalysis, what we're really dealing with is the paradoxical nature of identity in intimate conflict, in intimate relationship. So for example, the relationship between a parent and a child, or the relationship between two devoted love partners, 
Um, both of those examples, I think, are perfect examples of a dialectical relationship because the parent and the child are in some sense opposite identities and both dependent and co-related to each other. And it's their intimate conflict or intimate struggle with each other which produces something new, namely a new adult um, in sort of our embodied life. And, and psychoanalysis really emerges by paying attention to these relationships um, and, and, and sort of um, working through these relationships um, with uh, logical speech. So like that's the foundation of free association and the whole psychoanalytic process is basically talking about these paradoxes. So before I get into psychoanalysis itself, I think it's worth pointing out that there are two very important philosophical precursors to psychoanalysis, and that's Arthur Schopenhauer and Friedrich Nietzsche. And there are some predominant features in their philosophies that actually pave the way for psychoanalysis and the possibility of psychoanalysis. Um, and the common features are often, you know, described in such a way as that they are a break with traditional philosophy. And that could be in part why Freud was so antagonistic with philosophy is because he saw it as kind of a dead abstraction, which is no connection to the life will. Whereas in the foundations of Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, I just have some simple formulas down there that might be useful to sort of describe, you know, the foundation of their philosophies, which is to emphasize the life will or the will to power over the abstract intellect, um, to emphasize sort of the reality of negativity over our positive identity. That's really important for the discovery of the unconscious, because the discovery of the unconscious is kind of opposite of our conscious, what our conscious ego thinks of as positive identity. Um, that's really what disrupts. That's why psychoanalysis is such a disruption is because it's pointing out like, like Aaron and Alicia, Alicia's podcast, The Golden Shadow, the, and the concept of the shadow is really this negativity in, in this, in a philosophical sense. It's like the darkness or the, you know, what you don't see. Um, they also emphasize, for example, the power of death over the power of God. Um, that's another really important element of their philosophy um, and, and a precursor to psychoanalysis because psychoanalysis was seen as kind of like a secular, a secularization of many functions which were previously handled by religion. So you know, when we think about, and the, the, the correlation between, for example, a psychoanalytic session and a function like um, confession in Catholicism, it's not exact, but basically both religion and psychoanalysis are dealing with transference relationships. They're dealing with emotional uh, trauma of, of, of individuals basic life world. And, and, and so again, Schopenhauer and Nietzsche kind of emphasizing the power of death over the power of God is a precursor to what emerges in psychoanalysis. Um, some other aspects that are worth thinking about is that their philosophies open up the unknown inner 
over the known outer and a radical ethics over religious morality. And psychoanalysis is really sort of the institutionalization of this because we're going into your own unknown self and we're interested in your sort of capacity to develop a ethical autonomy over a sort of identification with a religious morality. So all of, the, all of this was sort of just to say that philosophy was dealing with topics that would become um, central to psychoanalysis only, only a decade or a few decades after Schopenhauer and Nietzsche were doing their work. Um, it really set the stage for psychoanalysis in some way. Now, going into um, psychoanalysis itself, I want to emphasize what I'm going to be talking about primarily in this sort of presentation is a paper called The Five Lectures on Psychoanalysis, which was published in 1910. And at this point in psychoanalysis history, um, Freud and Jung were both um, aligned and working together cooperatively. And um, this whole presentation basically is about sort of the foundations of where they agreed before I then sort of try to articulate where I think they disagreed and sort of then going into that disagreement, you know, what are we really debating between their two approaches to psychoanalysis? What are the, what, what's, at, what's at stake basically um, in their divergence? Um, I want to emphasize that when they were giving the five lectures on psychoanalysis, Freud famously said to Jung, uh, you know, because they were giving the lectures in America for the first time, quote, they don't realize we're bringing them the plague. Uh, that's really what that means with psychoanalysis is basically they don't know that what we're introducing here with the unconscious is um, a tremendous amount of uh, uh, sort of awareness about psychological negativity. So the foundations of early psychoanalysis, there's five points I'm going to be making. The first is, and I want to emphasize and shout out to um, a little known figure, but I think deserves much more attention is Joseph Brewer. Joseph Brewer was actually the first person to employ what became the psychoanalytic method before Freud then further developed it. And I'll go into sort of um, what that development entailed. Uh, the, the crucial thing here is that psychoanalysis emerges in what's called, you know, what they originally called spiritual illness, um, what we call today neuroses and psychoses, um, that in investigating these spiritual illnesses, they discovered a split mind, that is, our mind was not whole, or our, our mind was not unified, um, but split between a conscious and an unconscious, and that the conscious was actually maintaining itself via mechanisms of repression. Um, third, the development of methods for um, understanding the unconscious, there were three main methods originally, that being free association, uh, dream work, and attention to faulty action. Um, then finally, the identification from these methods that the cause of the spiritual illness was infantile sexuality and the development of libido. 
And then finally, uh, that the ultimate aim of psychoanalysis was in some sense to help individuals reconcile failed fantasy with reality. So that's sort of the foundation. So going into the origin, the origin of psychoanalysis and spiritual illness or neuroses and psychoses is basically how do we treat, and this is, this is an ancient problem that goes back to the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks you know, commented on hysteria. They commented on obsessional neuroses, but they didn't know how to treat it. Um, and this problem became more and more sort of central in, in, in the 20th century. And psychoanalysis is a, is a response to, in some sense, violent emotional shocks that medical science or, you know, biological sciences didn't know what to do with. Um, and, and, and to be honest, to this day, uh, we don't know how to deal with um, people's violent emotional um, disturbances. Uh, we throw pills at people's violent emotional disturbances. We numb people. The whole pharmaceutical industry is based on a numbing of people's um, emotional uh, hysteria, a numbing of people's emotional um, uh, inability to, 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 to cope with existence uh, itself. And, and the, the, the main distinction here that needs to be made is that we're dealing with people who have emotional problems, but there's no biological reason for the emotional problem. In other words, that's why it's sort of called a spiritual illness as opposed to a physical illness. Now, in the original approach to these problems, the idea was that the subject was being traumatized by some unknown memory and that they're basically haunted by an unconscious or an absence. And the first tools to approach this problem were uh, a combination of hypnosis and talk therapy. Um, and that's an important distinction to be made because one of the divergences between Freud and Jung, as I understand it, is on the use of hypnosis and the utility of hypnosis as a method. Uh, we're gonna go into why they disagreed on that point. So in the sort of uh, treating of people with hysteria and neuroses, um, there's the discovery of the split mind or basically the split between the conscious and the unconscious. And you see Freud's original image there of the unconscious uh, and the conscious mind on the left-hand side. Um, that's his original depiction of sort of how the unconscious functions and how, how, how repression works. That's basically... His, his model is that you have a conscious sensor and an unconscious symptom, and you have basically a dialectical process in the mind between the conscious mind trying to repress unconscious content and the unconscious symptom trying to make itself known to consciousness. And this conflict is basically the foundation of our identities. This conflict is basically the foundation of, of what we call adults. Um, and what's at the core of this conflict is the difference between our desires or wishes and reality, basically. So it's basically thwarted desire. It's like we can't get what we want or, or that we're somehow fundamentally disappointed with the nature of reality 
there's and this sort of disappointment with the nature of reality is kind of um, manifest in the dynamics of pleasure and unpleasure or what became known as the pleasure principle. So repression as a mech, and here's the, the main problem is that repression as a mechanism of the consciousness to sort of keep unconscious content unconscious fails to eliminate unpleasure, meaning that symptoms form um, and people started going to analysis when the symptoms of their unconscious started interfering with their day-to-day life beyond practical sort of organization. Basically, the symptom becomes so intense that you have to go to analysis to figure out what's going on inside of you. Um, And, you know, the metaphysics basically here that open up as a result of that is the metaphysics of the pleasure principle and the reality principle. Uh, where the reality principle is basically nothing other than the thwarting of pleasure. So the methods, basically someone comes to an analytic session and uh, basically says, I have uh, emotional symptoms. Um, I'm hysterical or I'm I'm a neurotic. I I don't know how to deal with my unconscious symptoms. The three basic methods that were first employed to deal with this were, um, and this is transitioning away from hypnosis for the reason that, and I think this is related to, um, you know, discussing the philosophy of psychedelics as well, is that hypnosis was seen as bypassing all of the mechanisms of repression that had been set up uh, and going straight to the source of the unconscious itself. So Freud was skeptical of hypnosis because it bypassed repression prematurely. And you might make the case that actually psychedelics might be doing the same thing, meaning that psychedelics bypass repression to the point where you're not actually working through all of the different mechanisms um, that have been erected as defenses um, uh, in order to sort of cope with the reality principle. So the idea of free association is that you suspend rational censorship. So for example, um, when I'm talking to you right now, I'm trying to be as rational and as sort of narrative based as I can be to communicate this information. But that very act um, doesn't help me understand my unconscious. My sort of rational narrative-based activity is actually basically a symptom. (laughs) And in order to get to the actual core of my unconscious, I have to suspend my censorship, my self-censorship. In other words, I have to speak disturbing content in my unconscious. And by disturbing content, I mean, content that would disrupt my normal identity. And through speaking content that would disrupt my normal identity, I actually get to the repressed content, the repressed material. Now, for Freud, the most sort of um, surest way, there's the surest way to get to this unconscious content is to analyze the unconscious dream itself. Because basically when we go to sleep at night, everything about the rational ego is suspended. 
Now, the most important aspect of dream interpretation in, in, in the development of psychoanalysis to me is the difference between manifest content and latent content. Manifest content is what you remember in an image. So you wake up from a dream and I had an image of, I don't know, I was, <laughs> could be whatever, whatever it is. I was, I, I was dating someone. I was having sex with someone. I, I, I was walking around with someone. I, whatever it is that you remember is the manifest content. The latent content is what you discover in the analytic work of unpacking the image. And the latent content has the more direct expression of the wish fulfillment. And the idea is, is that the core of each of our dreams is a simple wish, a simple desire. And that the complexification of the story in the dream is the mechanism of repression that needs to be worked through an analysis. And the main discovery, I think, which is so important discovery, is that children's dreams are extremely simple and extremely direct expressions of wish fulfillment, whereas adult dreams are complex and, in some sense, um, nonsensical from the point of view of wish fulfillment because of all the, the repression because of all the mechanisms of repression, which are basically blocking the core of the unconscious. Then finally, the third method of psychoanalytic investigation is faulty actions. And faulty actions basically mean in your day-to-day -day life, when you forget things, if you have a slip of the tongue, if you lose or break objects, all of these for psychoanalysis are unconscious motivations, um, unconscious impulses which are trying to express something and the only reason we call them faulty is because it's in contradiction with our conscious will it's in contradiction with our conscious intention so all of these things are and you know the deeper you go into faulty actions honestly the more the more disturbing you can get <laughs> it's really so the the uh here going to the what this investigation sort of led to was the idea that what's at the core of this psychological conflict is infantile sexuality and the development of libido um and to put this into context of like modern psychology and i think a lot of sort of scientific psychology is I think the repression of sexuality and the inability to really deal with the fact that our psyche is enormously disturbed um, and enormously confused when it comes to knowing what to do with sexuality. Um, and so this idea, which was resisted so strongly in the beginning is that our symptoms originate in failed erotic impulses and that we sort of universally struggle to deal with the hostility, the aggressivity, the love and the affection that we feel for members of the opposite sex and that all of these sort of hostile, aggressive and affectionate impulses um, 
sort of manifest in such a way um, that they're being grafted onto our first impressions or forms of um, our earliest caregivers. So for example, the classic Oedipal rule is that a son will be sort of unconsciously mapping love and affection for the mother and developing hostile and aggressive impulses towards the father, whereas a daughter will be mapping sort of love and affection towards the father and developing hostile and aggressive impulses towards the mother. The idea here is that what the psyche is struggling with is replacing the member of the same sex with and, and becoming united with a member of the opposite sex. That's sort of the simple way in which the unconscious psyche is being modeled. And then those dynamics are then playing themselves out unconsciously um, when we're adults and sort of dating, dating, you know, dating and trying to basically reproduce. You know, basically what psychoanalysis is saying is that the psyche is struggling with the very maintenance and continuation of the evolutionary process in some sense, you know? And then adult sexuality here becomes governed by this castration complex, which is basically what I just described in relate, relation to the, between the unconscious grafting on the opposite sex. It becomes dominated by sort of the energy of the body goes from being sort of distributed throughout the entire body, this polymorphous infantile sexuality into a genital dominance and um, becomes object oriented, becomes externalized onto another person. Um, and, you know, the sort of the process just starts repeating itself. You know, again, you start out as an impotent infant, um, you grow up, you try to meet someone of the opposite sex, reproduce the species, and then the whole thing just keeps going on and on and on like that. So the aim of psychoanalysis was basically to, you know, we, we can't get out of the evolutionary process, basically, um, but we can help people who uh, are struggling with this emotional illness as a, as a failure of fantasy, uh, and basically they become too disciplined pointed or weak to face reality. Um, here we think about, for example, someone who goes to a monastery or someone who just basically withdraws from reality. Psychoanalysis is trying to do the opposite in some sense, is trying to make people um, sort of, or help people face reality, even if they're too disappointed or weak to face it. Um, and just the idea that there's this universal human frustration of reality uh, and that all we can do in some sense is balance, mech, balance sublimation uh, with different degrees of neurosis and perversion. Um, and the ultimate aim, at least at this point in psychoanalysis, was to um, help people move towards a, a knowledge of the unconscious motivations and hopefully become rational, pro-social, and sexually balanced. So with that being said, I just wanted to give a summary of like those basic points. First, the origin of psychoanalysis and the spiritual illnesses, uh, the discovery of the split consciousness, um, the mechanism of free association to get in touch with the unconscious. Um, basically what one's doing in this is coming to terms with sexual difficulties and paradoxes, ultimately this problem of being one or the loss of the one 
um, and then uh, ultimately dealing with navigating reality or frustrated pleasure. Now, when it comes to Freud and Jung, what are they disagreeing about? Um, as far as I understand it, and and you know, some I'm so, you know definitely in the after this presentation, I would be open to uh, different interpretations. But this is my understanding of the disagreement: is that Jung bases his psyche on the collective unconscious, which is basically a species cycle, uh, a, the species psyche, and a mystical identity. Whereas Freud's counter to that would be that the collective unconscious obfuscates the problems of the individual psyche and basically the idea that the unconscious on a very basic level is not a mystical identity, but an unconscious reflexivity. That What that means is that the unconscious is always being reflexively mediated by the individual and that any identification with the collective unconscious would be an obfuscation of that individual's own unconscious drama. Now, the other big disagreement between them was basically the question of the libido. Basically, for Jung, he famously desexualized or claimed that the libido was non-sexual and uh, sort of situated the libido on a holistic transpersonal level um, basically as a, as a unity. And that's, I think, related also to the collective unconscious. Now, the Freudian counter to that is that for Freud, uh, libido is sexual and you can't get out of that. And that the consequence of libido being sexual is that you're dealing with a fundamental asymmetry and sexual difference about castration. So, you know, why that sort of you know, so fundamental to me anyway, is because um, I think dealing with the asymmetry between the sexes and dealing with a sexualized libido is the surest way to avoid spiritual bypassing. And what I see as the main mechanism of spiritual bypassing is this desexualization of libido, because in my view, is that it's basically the location of the most painful feeling of being separated from unity um, and also navigating, you know, the complexities of relationships. The other main difference is on regards to epistemology is that Jung basically goes into mystical knowledge, um, again, using hypnosis and religious knowing, you know, with the archetypes of the collective unconscious, Whereas the Freudian counter to that would be to emphasize dialectics of speech and unconscious rationality. So those are the th three main differences between Freud and Jung that I'm aware of. And that's sort of where I sort of situate my understanding of their two positions. Um, again, where the reason why I, you know, although I think there's paradoxes in my own position, which I'll go into, but, the reason why I would side with Freud on these three issues is because I think that there's a lot to be gained by um, dealing with each psyche as an individual with no reference to any collectivity, specifically because of the unconscious reflexivity. And the more you learn about the unconscious, the, at least the more I learn about my own unconscious, 
the more I see that my unconscious is being reflexively mediated by myself, um, then on the level of sex, again, on the level of sexual asymmetry, I think that we have the biggest risk of spiritual bypassing if we're not talking directly about sexual asymmetry and sexual difference. Because if, again, because it's so painful, I think. And then finally, on the level of epistemology, I think that staying true to the idea of free association, that we have to stay on the level of speech, or we have to stay on the level of, you know, the free association on the, the, the basically the speech of a free association session, um, in order to understand the core of the unconscious. So the idea I want to propose here is, and I'm going to go deeper into this a little bit, is that what it seems to me is that Jung is operating on the level of the imaginary, whereas, and this is hopefully my working towards possibly understanding the meta-level relationship between them, but that Freud is working on the level of the symbolic. So in some level, they're working on different levels, I think, which might be a reason why there's disagreement between them and why there's conflict between the communities. Um, but that would be my initial idea is that when I think about the collective unconscious, when I think about desexualized libido, and when I think about religious knowing, um, oftentimes these ideas are related more to the imaginary than to the symbolic. And I think that working with the symbolic um, is something that we shouldn't lose because ultimately the symbolic is what helps us to navigate reality itself. Um, now I'm gonna go a little bit deeper into this. As long as I've got the, the time, I'm not going over time too much. But here the consequence for the metaphysical turn is that Freud ends up developing a dualism. And that dualism is a dualism between libido and death drives. So you have this idea in Freud of a balancing between life drives and death drives, let's say, and that the psychoanalytic process was to sort of help relieve the subject of um, the tension between the life and the death drive. That, that, that's what's the point of sort of like navigating fantasy and reality. Um, whereas with Jung, you have this idea of a monism of a transpersonal libido. And like, I would always hear Jungians talking about, for example, the identification with the big self or the unified self. Um, so this is a big metaphysical difference and a big metaphysical disagreement between them. And it basically, it seems to me, is located on the level of um, unity, um, on the level of sort of mystical oneness, I would say, where Freud is balancing the tension of being a divided self um, it seems to me like Jung is trying to mediate a psychological identity with the big self or the transpersonal self, let's say. Now, in my own ideology, I've sort of followed a different school. And that school is a school that goes from Freud to Lacan to contemporary philosopher Slavoj Zizek. And the difference with the way Lacan and Zizek hold unity is basically on the level of impossibility. So instead of identification with the big self, um, Lacan and Zizek basically 
um, accept the sort of division of the self and try to work with impossibility itself. So if you think about, for example, becoming a mother or a father or a child, um, we're basically dealing with impossible relationships and uh, we're dealing with navigating increasing tension. And that's sort of how I understand Zizek's philosophy is that you're de dealing with the increasing uh, increasing the tension of the impossible almost. Um, and I think that this is a, an interesting way to understand um, many different phenomena in adult, in adult life. Although this presentation probably, I don't have enough time to go into the sort of dimensions of this. I just wanted to give this overview on sort of where my sort of philosophical ideology has um, tended. And the main point I want to emphasize is that it's kind of dealing with the, um, I guess it's dealing with the idea that when we go into metaphysical unity, there's the risk of bypassing the reality of our divided condition and navigating the tensions that emerge in our actual real relationships. So this is Zizek's basic axis. Maybe this is too much to go into. I don't need to go into, I don't need to go into Zizek. But the- Do it, man. The idea, sorry? Do, do the presentation. Oh, okay, okay, I'll go, I'll, go into, I'll go into Zizek, okay. So the basic idea in Zizek is there is no big other. And that's basically a critique of ideology. So. The idea here is that there's no, um, that any attempt to have a mystical unity basically is a search for a big other. It's a search for an other that could take away our tension. It's a search for an other that could take away the problems of embodiment. It's a search for, like this type of searching for a big other emerges in all different fields, in science, religion, um, and so forth, like, like even the positing of a, a, an all-knowing God or searching for a grand unified theory of everything or in politics, like even searching for communism, like searching for some sort of political unity. All of these are searching for a big other. And the idea in Zizek's philosophy is that there is no such big other. And that sort of leaves us with our own individual tension and it leaves us with this idea um, that is basically in Zizek's philosophy that instead of ideology, um, what we have to confront basically is what he calls impossibilism of the real. Um, that the real is both impossible and unfortunately unavoidable, which is that, <laughs> that unity and oneness, let the, basically that, we, that unity and oneness are absent in our, in this, in this reality, and that we have to work through that impossibility. Of course, that's like, if I think about sexual difference, if I think about marriage, if I think about intimate relationships, this sort of ontology to me functions really well, is that in a love relationship, you really want to be one with someone, you really want to have a unity with someone, um, and this is sort of impossible, but it's also unavoidable in the sense that you can't not at least try to balance the unity at the same time. You know, it's like kind of like the problem between, you know, strict 
theological monogamy versus, you know, sort of polyamory, you know, because in polyamory, you totally obfuscate the one and you just try to, you know, be with multiple partners or share your love among a multiplicity of partners. And that doesn't work. And then the theological oneness, you know, like sort of going into the marriage and going into like a strict sort of relationships where with where the law is tightly bound, that also doesn't work. And that's sort of fallen apart. So basically what that leads in Jizik's ontology is this idea that you find truth in failure and contradiction and incoherence as opposed to sort of success and, you know, constantly trying to project uh, the coherence of your identity. Um, again, that's on the level of uh, the imaginary. So this is an interesting model here that Lacan developed on the level between the imaginary, the symbolic and the real. Um, and this sort of triad between the imaginary and the symbolic and real is something I wanted to actually use um, to situate both Jung and Freud. Um, here I'm going to do that. So where I put it is that it could be that Jung's theory operates on the level of the imaginary um, and that Freud's theory operates on the level of the symbolic, um, which is sort of interesting if you take a look at their personal relationship because Freud is in some sense the father of psychoanalysis um, which is on the level of speech, the you know, in psychoanalysis on the level of the symbolic, you know, and the father is on the level of the law. Whereas Jung was in some sense Freud's son. And it could be that actually Jung was operating like a son does to a father. Um, let me just go into what I mean by that is that it's, all of these, it's just that I'm trying to explain a lot and I'm trying to do it really, really quickly. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it justice, but that in some sense, the relationship between Freud and Jung is in some sense, this transference relationship where there's a upsetness at the loss of the mystical unity. Um, there's an upsetness at like, you know, it's kind of like the father taking away the feeling of unity with the mother in some sense. And in that relationship, I'm not sure if I'm doing the, the, the description justice, but if you, if you, if you look at this, if, if, if any of you guys take a look at this slide, there, there's a, there's, and, and if learning about Lacan's triad, there is something here that I think is, is worth going into. And I just want to say that the difference between the way Jung and, and Lacan related to Freud um, has, I think, a deep meaning because the main thing I want to talk, wanted to sort of say was that when, when someone rebels against the father, I think that we should be skeptical of this motion. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because I, I've sort of analyzed my own psyche with this, with this process is that I know when I've gone into someone else's symbolic house, so to speak, and tried to rebel against him, um, I don't trust that part of my own psyche. Like, I, I don't like, 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 let's keep it real. Like, 
Freud developed a, a conceptual discipline and Jung rebelled against him. And I, I don't trust that same motion in myself is what I'm trying to say. Cause I know, I know I have that in me and, 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 and I don't trust it in, in myself. So that's sort of like where I, I, I have a spontaneous skeptic skepticism towards it. Now, with that being said, I don't think Freud works today in many ways. Um, the first thing is that psychoanalysis presents us with enormous methodological difficulties. Like the whole analytic process is extremely demanding. Um, it's extremely demanding on both the analyst and the analysand. It's slow. It's laborious. It's emotionally difficult. There's really no end to it. And you're basically left with confronting the real, which is still horrible. It's just that you're more conscious of the horribleness of it. Um, then there's the political economic dimension of analytic work, which is that you have to pay for an analytic session. You know, it's it's like I would give a class-based analysis to psychoanalysis. Like, like, like if we all have emotional difficulties, how can like it should be socialized? Like, if psychoanalysis is going to be a part of our society, it should be like free healthcare. Like, we should have analytic sessions that are open access. I don't know. That's like the main thing I would say. And 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 also we have to have support for analysts because it's also extremely emotionally difficult for an analyst to go through that whole process of people's emotional difficulties. Um, then another aspect of it is, you know, does psychoanalysis actually replace religion? Um, I think most people would say it, it's failed in that regard. I know, for example, Jacques Lacan would say that psychoanalysis is too fragile for the real world, that the real world is so much like the real world is so devastating and that and that psych like psychoanalysis is basically too fragile for the world like that religion is in some sense something we repressed in the 20th century and that maybe it's going to return you know like this is a weird thing where freud's own theory could be destroyed you know because like if you think about freud's idea of return of the repressed like it could be that religion is a return of the repressed in the 21st century you know, religion could return with a huge, you know, revival um, because actually we need it. And, 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 and psychoanalysis doesn't replace it. So like, that's also an area where I'm also like interested in where a Jungian analysis might be superior to a Freudian analysis because Jung was a friend to religion in many regards. And, you know, I mean, I'm just trying to identify the own paradoxes in, in my own point of view, really, because, you know, I don't think Freudian psychoanalysis replaces religion, basically. <laughs> so, um, so that's an interesting thing to consider. And then finally, um, again, neither Freud or Jung had anything to say about psychedelics and psychedelics are sort of emerging with a force now as well. And psychedelics give you a direct contact to the unconscious. Um, so yeah, what about that? <laughs> like, that's a big question. Um, and, and, and I don't think either Freud and Jung are sufficient on this level of, of, of thinking about what does our society look like 
with a wise integration of psychedelics. To me, if you wisely integrated psychedelics, what you would get is religion. So <laughs> like, again, like the paradox of religion here emerges. And then finally, um, what about transhumanism? Like science is massively messing around with our biology. Um, and also like we're modeling the psyche and we're modeling biology. Um, and we're gonna play around with the basic structure of our own nature. And you know what? Like if humans fundamentally are disappointed with reality, um, I don't think you can stop transhumanism because transhumanists are gonna keep on pushing and they're gonna keep on modifying the basic structure of our psyche and the basic structure of our, our bodies. Um, who knows what will happen with that, you know? So I don't know, I think there's big questions here about the future of psychoanalysis. Um, and then finally, I just wanted to also apply like the Lacanian triad to Freud himself. So there's three important facts about Freud's life that I think I wanted to leave you guys with. One, um, he was an obsessional chain smoker. So Freud never stopped smoking. Um, Freud smoked until he died and nonstop. Um, that's a good imaginary metaphor for the phallus. So I would say his obsessional chain smoking was on the level of the imaginary. Um, and also like a good, good metaphor for the castration complex. Um, on the level of the symbolic, um, it's interesting that although he was married his entire life, as their marriage developed, they introduced a gap in between their beds. So their beds split from one bed to two beds. Um, and that's a good metaphor for the castration complex as well. Um, and it's also a good metaphor for sexual difference and, um, and in some sense, the impossibility of sexuality. Um, so even though they, but you know, but I wanted to say is that like, actually the introduction of a gap in their bed from one bed to two beds, um, I actually think that's a mature, even a noble symbolic act um, as opposed to a divorce, for example. You know, and, and, and in defense to like sort of Freud's wife, um, she was instrumental in, you know, his entire life. Like, I don't think Freud could have done what he did without, without Martha. Um, so I think that's an important thing to, to, to emphasize is that when it comes to Freud's career, he's very much indebted to, um, you know, his wife and, and, and that whole structure. And then finally, the real... Um, Freud never found paradise. Um, Freud never found, you know, enlightenment. Um, Freud just found the real of a life-changing catastrophe. Um, he was uh, diagnosed with cancer and battled cancer for the last 16 years of his life. Um, and, you know, that's as real as it gets. So here, I just want to sort of emphasize, you know, like the way in which I think this idea of the imaginary symbolic and real can be applied to our own lives um, in a very useful uh, way. So this is the last slide, again, just taking you back to philosophical method of dialectics. What I hope I did today was sort of use dialectics to work through um, the commonalities between Freud and Jung, um, but also sort of you know, as that starting point, analyzing also their, their difference and, and where 
um, where that difference might might lead. Because um, I, I I hope I didn't give uh, the impression that I'm on one side or the other, but really sort of working with the paradoxes um, between them, um, and and sort of like you know being as honest as I can about where I feel um, both Freud and Jung um, were correct and where they made mistakes in my in my view. So that's uh that's the end of the presentation. All right. So who won? I don't think no no one wins. Everyone loses in the real. Every, everyone loses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's my takeaway. Uh, so Cadell, I want uh, maybe I, maybe I'll segue a little bit from your presentation, but I'm I'm wondering what you think of the modern conception of Freud. He's kind of like a meme almost, I would say. And like just, just to illustrate that, um, let's see if I can share my screen. Right, so this is, this is the Netflix TV show called Freud that premiered like in the last year. And the premise is that Freud uh, goes around Vienna in the 19th century and he solves murder mysteries. And this is strange, <laughs> right? This is, this is like a strange thing. It's like, what if Freud could see this now? As like, there's a TV show where he's essentially like a Sherlock Holmes character. Like, yeah. um, there's also the movie, A Dangerous Method. I don't know if you've seen that, where it's like Michael Fassbender plays Jung and Viggo Mortensen plays Freud. I haven't like, seen it. Magneto versus Aragorn, almost. Yeah. <laughs> so my point is like, Freud, yeah. I don't think he's understood in the way that you understand him, widely in culture, right? No, not at all. So what do you make of Freud as like the meme? No, it's, it's, it's so weird. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's actually like interesting because like Freud's idea of the image was that the image is always a, like a symptom, like a, a symptom or a distortion. Um, and I think that that idea can be applied to Freud's own historicity. Um, I think that Freud as an image is um, a distortion, a symptom of our own inability to um, confront or deal with, um, I think, embodied sexuality um like there's so much there's so much repression of the core of what he discovered um and that makes sense because he's basically saying that the ego rebels against this unconscious knowledge so i i don't think he's dealt with seriously i don't think he's i don't think he's dealt with like I just don't think he's 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 dealt with seriously. Like, and it's it's really, it's really weird. I hope that I hope that makes sense in some way. It does. Uh, I'm wondering um, what's your take on sort of the popularity of Yun nowadays that's that's rising up, and uh, whether or not you see that as a good thing or a bad thing. Um, you think Yun is being properly interpreted? I think that, like, so my suspicion is that Jung is popular because of the desexualization of the libido. Like, that's the main, that's my main idea, is that I think that because there's such an emphasis on unity, like transpersonal unity, and there's such an emphasis on symmetry between the sexes, um, that's palatable 
um but like actually going into sexual difference like if like if you pay attention to like the real of sexual difference like not like the ideology if you go into the real of sexual difference it's very painful and it's very disturbing um and the types of problems that people actually have to navigate in like a marriage like i like throughout my entire life what i always do is i observe marriages very closely and i observe like relationships between men and women very closely and it's always disturbing so the fact that it's always disturbing um and and another thing is that i've actually talked with a lot of people who have built um what you could call like intentionally based communities based on jungian metaphysics and the same problem always emerges which is a problem of boundaries and a problem of the father so i would say again that freud here is on the level of the symbolic and freud is on the level of the father whereas i would say jung is much more on the level of the the image and which can be motivating but it's distorted and like the real you have to go through the symbolic like and the child hates that because it's basically taking away your toy like i want to play with the mother so like but no one likes the father like the father you no, the look the father's hated until he dies and then you respect him when he when he's dead that's kind of like what happens to the father unfortunately so yeah i would say that like I, like i like images as much as the next guy but i'm also skeptical of them <laughs> i don't know <laughs> there's a there's oh, here's only one because more. i've been only because i've been you know i've been i've been failed like they failed me so many times <laughs> this is uh this is one more curveball question uh if you see how would i phrase this what what do you make of peterson as being sort of a father figure for the culture but also having this uh jungian thought that he's really injected into the culture so he's he's combining sort of like this father figure but also the jungian uh concepts what do you make of peterson and his jungian thoughts i think i think Pete, like peterson like one like his 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 performativity is more freudian than jungian but his ideology is more jungian than freudian like in terms of his performativity he's playing the role of the father and he's being like a disciplinary symbolic character um but he's also like an agent of repression um and you can tell that he's repressed and like that's actually one of the consequences of um living in a committed monogamous relationship for decades so i'm not against him but like that's one of the consequences is that you become extremely repressed and and he is he is a i actually written a paper about the relationship between jizik and peterson um in a dialectical way um and like i'm a i'm a jizikian basically so i i would say that i would say that jizik um 
in some senses someone that handles the symbolic in such a way as that the strict disciplinary rule-based thinking is more playful, more dialectical, Like Zizek is like Zizek is within the law, but he plays with the law. Whereas Peterson is very serious. And again, he's like a strict disciplinarian. Which has problems. Like I think that 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 like that problem my critique of Freud as well. Cadell, can you give us some information about where we can find your work, any links, um, social media platforms, anything like that? Yeah, for sure. So you can find me at cadellast.com. Um, I also have a YouTube channel. And the main sort of thrust of my work is, I think, the philosophy of psychoanalysis. So I'm not like I am, in some sense, a practicing analyst. Um, although, you know, I've, I've, I've only been doing it for about a year now. Um, most of my energy is towards thinking about psychoanalysis from a philosophical perspective, because like from this presentation, like I was trying to give the perspective that Freud and Jung are really interesting thinkers in so many dimensions, but the level of the problems we're facing I think far outstrip them in the 21st century. We're dealing with huge problems. And and yeah, I mean, this is why these conversations I think and and your guys work as well with Golden Golden um Shadow podcasts like these types of conversations we need we need uh, more conversations about the unconscious basically. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much for visiting Golden Shadow today. Thank you all for attending. Uh, we've got some upcoming events. Uh, we will be speaking to Stefan Fox from the Uber Boyo YouTube channel about Jung's Red Book. We've got a couple of workshops coming up, an introduction to personality and a workshop on the hero's journey. And then we'll be moving into some more discussions later in June around the deconstruction of language, religion, living in a symbolic life. So head over to goldenshadow.org for more information. And we hope to see you at the next event. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash golden shadow org. If you'd like to keep up to date with our projects, attend one of our live events, or work one-on-one with myself or Aaron, head to www.goldenshadow.org. Thanks for listening. See you later.